Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques. Sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Here are Scott and Bill. This is episode... 226, where we talk about Jean Calvin and predestination. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Welcome back to the show. Yes. We had a week off. It was good. Took a little break from things. You went to the beach. Yeah, the holiday. Yeah, it was. It was God bless. Holiday. God bless America. Yeah, I went to see uh, fireworks um, in Lawrence Township. And uh, for... You know, occasionally a soundtrack with fireworks can be pretty interesting. Um, you know, obviously, I, I heard the Colorado Orchestra one time play in Colorado Springs with fireworks. That was pretty amazing. They did the 1812 Overture. I've heard the music of John Williams with fireworks done, and, you know, they were synced. That was pretty interesting. But uh, <laughs> this this uh, particular fireworks, that every particular song that ever had anything, that even said America in it, so back to back, we had Neil Diamond coming to America, followed by that Toby Keith song about "We're going to blow you up, uh, you you foreigners who attacked us." And uh, <laughs> yeah, and then so at you one had point, the song of hopeful immigrants that and made the, the country, and, and then, then followed by xenophobia. Yeah, and then at one point they had uh, guess who, American woman. Uh, which was an anti-American song. <laughs> so, uh, our, our Canadian friends probably are singing that a lot right now. All right, very good. So we are back to our series, which we start, which we uh, we will be the first to admit that there is a thin thread, perhaps tiny. thin red line. Well, I was saying thin <laughs> thin thread. Easier to say, easy for you to say. Linking this theme together, but it began with a question. By the way, we both look summer complected. Yeah, we've gotten some sun, so yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, um, but it do came, you use sunscreen? Uh, I do, I do. SPF, uh, no, at least thirty. Yeah, Lindy says she uses SPF. A very white person, <laughs> very white. <laughs> Any rate, uh, we had a question or a, a comment from one of our listeners wanting to us to talk a little bit about our view of human will, uh, human freedom. Uh, our anthropology, so we're salvation, yeah, the so, Christian life. So we're we're basically uh, it was a very narrow question. Uh, it was a narrow question that we are just yeah roaming and rambling on. So we talked about Luther last time, and so now we're going to talk about John Calvin, unexpected, the little Luther, the little Luther, which actually uh, I tying that was an interesting tying Teresa of Lusso and Luther together. So we're going to talk about John Calvin today. Bill and I have both been trained and spent time in the Presbyterian traditions. I always say, as a Presbyterian, you follow three JCs, Jesus Christ, John Calvin, and Johnny Cash. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> yeah, that would be your branch of Presbyterian. Exactly. Well, yeah, that, that's mine. I think, I think more, more Presbyterians should listen to Johnny Cash. That would be Cash. like the AARP, the RP, that minus the JCP, <laughs> Johnny Cash Presbyterian. Anyway, so... You wanted to talk about so why did you pick predestination to to do this for? Him? Well, uh, because I thought it's something that when people bring up Calvin, it's a novel take. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, would uh, you have a favorite book on Calvin? A favorite book on Calvin? Yeah. 
No, I can't think of. I mean, I um, what's what's I'm trying to go through my library. I don't I don't know. I, there's a book that t- compares his thoughts to Thomas Aquinas that I think is pretty interesting. I don't know if I have a favorite book on John Calvin. Mine is Brian Garish's Grace and Gratitude: The Eucharistic Theology of John Calvin. And what he says in the intro is that he, he he's not writing on Calvin's Eucharistic theology. He's saying Thanksgiving is that grace and gratitude uh, is Calvin's understanding of the Christian life. And so, yeah, it's now I like also like to call it the subtitle really should be a kindler, gentler Calvin. <laughs> well, I, I, I if anyone wanted to read like a, a a really good book on Calvin, it's like two hundred pages. I think they were lectures originally delivered at. Edinburgh or St. Andrews. And it, I mean, it, the book is fantastic. I would throw out one that hardly anyone ever mentions is Louis Bourrier's book, The Spirit and Form of Protestantism. It's written in the 40s. He's a Catholic scholar, but he actually was trying to um, uh, talk about uh, Protestant theology in kind of dialogue with Catholicism. Uh, and uh, his, he, he has a really interesting take on John Calvin. He calls uh, Calvin a kind of logical mysticism. Particularly because of his the, the center being the you know absolute sovereignty of God you know for you know whereas Luther's justification of my faith the irony he says of Lutheranism is that even though God does all the work for Luther it seems like the center of the whole enterprise is the salvation of humanity so so it really is a pretty human centered kind of kind of theology matter of fact he says what what you get with liberal Protestantism is you get justification of faith without any doctrine. And so that's kind of where I think he says, whereas Calvin, he says, with this idea of a solo glory, you know, uh, solo glory day, you know, that God is, you know, God's sovereignty or the absolute um, uh, majesty of God. He says that actually Calvin's doctrine of God has a lot of affinity with St. John of the Cross. And, you know, he places either that, at least that dimension of Calvin's thought in in the great tradition, even uh, implying like some of the apathetic, you know, mystic theologians, he actually sees there's a kind of mysticism in Calvin, even though Calvinists would, many of them would resist that that idea. Yeah, I mean, Calvin might not though, because I mean, you read it's very interesting because my teacher Bruce McCormick would always say that if you want to look about what Calvin thinks about you with Christ, don't look to the Eucharist because theology, which he writes volumes on, he writes more about the Eucharist than predestination. Look at uh, his debate with Osiander, book three, because when he's in book four, he's just being sentimental and reading, and reading and patristic piety, and he's just being sentimental. I'm like, what? What, right, what no, is that? I always like when, no, it's like when we say, no, Karl Barth, you can't really say what you're saying. Exactly. No, no, you can't. You're not allowed, because that's not how I understand you. No, I think Calvin's little, that little treatise on prayer in book four is, is really powerful and beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting, too. So two thoughts on what you said. Alexander Schweitzer, who was a 19th century kind of dogmatician, where back when in the 19th century you sort of, at least in Germany, you, the, the dogmatic enterprise was, let's figure out the animating principle behind the, the Lutheran way or the Reform way. Right. And it, it, it was a big debate. It was like, it's justification versus predestination. And Schweitzer said, no, it's justification by faith versus, for the Reform person, the distinction between the creator and the creature, which is interesting because it, you think a lot about like the Eucharistic debates and right. the Christological debates and these sorts of things. So, I mean, that, the other thing I think is like the whole to glory to God alone, like Garish, who I like a lot, but in his, and I think a lot of his brief dogmatics and outline, but man, his eschatology is like, well, if it's to glory to God alone, who knows if there's an afterlife, but there must be a creator and things go on. <laughs> 
And I'm like, wow. Wow. Man. I don't, don't have this guy preach anyone's funeral. No, no. <laughs> well, you know. It, the beat must go on. The beat must go on. But the interesting thing, uh, we kind of, you kind of, part of this uh, podcast was set up in the last one because of, for Calvin, the doctrine of election was a, was a remarkable comfort. He, I think this is where, you know, it's hard to see who, it's hard to find the, the the man Calvin in his work often people people say I mean Luther's all Luther's all over every page of himself but I think there is something when he talks about election I actually think there's something there because Calvin's own sense of of hope his own sense of security um, in the midst of a life that had a lot of tragedy and in, in the midst of a very tumultuous time I think was the comfort he found from you know the sense that God had chosen him and that he was part of God's family because of nothing that he was accomplishing, but solely by the work of God. That that comes across in Calvin, not so much in the later Calvinists, but it comes across as really a a sense of great comfort and joy. And also, I think the argument for the bondage of the will and predestination in Calvin, Luther bondage of the will, predestination in Calvin, it's it's not just a recovery of Augustine. It's also a sort of in-your-face to a mechanistic understanding of who owns the keys to the kingdom, right? right well, if right. we excommunicate you, well, you're right. out. They, well, this day you're in, this day you're out. Right. On a, even on a normal basis, the sacramentalists could be like that. Aside from ecclesial manipulation, well, right. you're not playing ball, your whole kingdom's out. So there's this pastoral application. Well, the fact that you were in God's good graces is not in your control or the church's control, but this is, you know, work of God. Right, yeah. No, and now the interesting thing that one of the things that happens in subsequential Calvinism is trying to figure out if you're party elect for your sense of security. You know, this idea of having some sort of, whether it be religious affections or whatever, some sort of sign, assurance uh, of your of the genuine presence of God. That insecurity that that causes um, is part of what sets up both Wesley, the Wesleyan kind of break from the Puritan tradition as well as uh, the need of the Great Awakening. So I have two quotes I want to share. One is negative, one is positive. There we go. Let's do you it. want to start with negative or positive? Let's go negative first and then end with positive. Of course. All right, there you go. I knew you'd like negative first. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illumine my light. Oh, here we go. My reading light. light there we are. <laughs> you like I have a reading light? <laughs> <laughs> I have a reading light? You like that, didn't you? Hey, can I move it? I want to bet. If I get to refill my beverage, if I move a different panel? Exactly. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the Jetsons. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, 
Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Jim Kirk, Samantha Konauer, and Jordan DeMaze. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So this is a quote from a guy who wrote a book, uh, uh, Peter Torson, who wrote a book, which is a good book. Peter uh, Torson, how do, I know that name. How he wrote I? a book, Oxford Press, in 2009. It's a good book called Predestination, the American Career of a Contentious Doctrine. It's a very well-researched book. Uh, I, I don't have the paper copy. I have. I just have it on my uh, iPad. But okay. uh, So he's talking about what happened in New England, and I came across the... It came back to my mind because I've been reading this book by Oakes, and he has a chapter on predestination. So he has this great quote from Turson that talks about what happened in Puritan New England with some of the certain right. excesses mm-hmm. of Calvinists. It's sort of the, we're playing the game that certain Calvin scholars hate, uh, Calvin versus the Calvinists, but they're not here, so we're going to play. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, you don't you don't like hold them? Don't play don't play at our table. <laughs> So first, anxiety over one's predestined salvation entailed something of a catch-22. If you were not anxious about your eternal election, you were obviously not elect. (laughs) 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 But continuous, or at least cyclical anxiety about election, denied you the very comfort that predestination was supposed to bring. Comfort, in other words, could be notoriously elusive in the system. Predestinary anxiety all too easily passed from salutary struggle to genuine distress. <laughs> the second problem was its sheer intensity. Not everyone was a spiritual marathon runner like Edwards or an accomplished sol- soliloquist like Hamlet. Many Americans, including many Puritan lay people, were happy simply muddling through. <laughs> they looked to religion for the sort of automatic and tangible comforts that medieval lay people saw merely watching the mass. Yeah. But such a view of the sacrament was the very thing Puritan clerics were bent on dispelling. That's a fascinating... That's an interesting description. Yeah, where you have this, I like that. Well, if you don't have some anxiety, you're not a Christian. But if you got too much anxiety, you're, you're not a Christian either. So yeah. what's the what's really the sweet spot of spiritual anxiety? We, we, you can begin just from that phrase alone. It doesn't take... It doesn't take much movement to understand why Charles Finney went to town. Exactly. <laughs> why, why that was easy to sweep I've that got a system for you guys. I've got to, I can make sure you know. Well, and the other thing that's interesting, too, is, you know, and Borier will, uh, observes this, uh, that, you know, true Calvinism is and will always be a minority, small minority movement. Just the very nature of the system. I mean, it, for, a, for a number of different reasons. Uh, he says its influence will, will always be disproportionate, but the actually adhere, adherence to it. I think part of it is because of this doctrine. It's hard. First of all, I mean, it's hard not to become a double predestinationist, right? Uh, and um, and I think that, that, that the doctrine of predestination often is a, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's often the one that it breaks the deal. So we have a comment. Uh, from, coming from Facebook Live from Jeffrey Carter out in California. He says, this is why I had to leave confessional Calvinism. 
they make election the center of the Christian life and give you more anxiety than reading Sartre. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good... I, I, way more anxiety. Way found, more anxiety, yeah, Sartre. I, I found Sartre therapeutic at times. Right, yeah. You know, you just end up dying in a car accident if you're Sartre. But uh, that's right. He died in a car accident, right? That doesn't mean you'll die. I mean, you don't read oh, a book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like well, you drink from Nostradamus' skull. You know, there's people... Like, no. That's a weird thing. People... If you're reading Sartre while you're driving, you could die. Well, you could text. <laughs> more people die from texting. Don't, don't text with, Don't text that Sartre. That is interesting. You know, People have like dug up Nostradamus and tried to drink wine from his skull with the idea that you would get his power. And weirdly, I, I feel like several of these people died weirdly. Yeah, that's just that's just weaning out the gene pool. That's pretty good. <laughs> right, right. yeah. You're drinking Dar- from it when you're drinking from that's, it. That's that's Darwinism helping us right there. Exactly. So that's very good. Well, I do. I think. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Phil. I I don't. Is that social, like, socio-biological Darwinism? <laughs> I mean, you just became an official socio-biological Darwinism. <laughs> if, you dig up, if you drink wine out of Nostradamus' skull in order to get insight and die, motorcycle accident. Camus died. Uh, Jeffrey Carter Camus, responded. Uh, Camus died. Sartre Sart killed himself then, right? Sart, Camus died in the accident. Sartre killed himself, I think, how it worked out. Nonetheless, they still were less anxious. Than, <laughs> well, you know, and you'd have to ask, I think... Um, Beza would be responsible and Senator Dort uh, for predestination moving to the center of Calvinism, right? What, that's, that would be post-Calvin. Wait, Senator Dort? The that idea, was, the that, idea that, that wasn't Beza, was it? Well, but they learned from Beza. From Beza. Yeah, right. well, so everyone, everyone learned from Beza. Well, that, so we can blame everything on Beza. But that's, I meant, though, the people who, that's, that's that idea. So you're saying, yeah, this is the classical argument of Calvin versus the Calvinists, which... What my teacher Charles Barty was fond of, as our most sort of mainlineish confessional sort of Calvin scholars, I think, uh, more sort of conservative folks who, uh, what you know, like people that are in say the PCA or the Orthodox Christian Church, they generally want to say there's more of a line, a direct connection between Calvin and the subsequent confessional tradition. Right. I mean, I think that that's. I mean, I, it's not. I think both. Things are probably yeah. You can extreme. make an argument both so, yeah, ways. But, you yeah. know, but, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, but you know, one of the things, of course, <laughs> we've said this before. If if you really if you really did believe that God alone is is you know that it's all God in that way, if God elects and God elects both people for salvation perdition, if you thought you were party elect, that should make you very humble. But it doesn't. That doesn't tend to be the chief virtue <laughs> that I associate. With that theological tradition. Now, there are people, our friend uh, Strawbridge, he's a humble guy. Absolutely. And he's a Calvinist. But I would say he, he represents the minority of that kind of piety. And again, I'm, I mean, hubris comes in all forms. I'm not uh, saying, I'm not confessing, I'm not saying I don't have it. But it seems. Hubris that, sounds fantastic. I read about these Greek tragic tra- 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 figures. Well, I mean, I don't read. But I mean, Byron tells me about them <laughs> at, the, at the friends, think, Sidwell, Sidwell friends in D.C. Do you think Byron reads to Donald at night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think of this, Dad? Hey, hubris, I would have won everything. I have no Achilles heel. I'd have been like Achilles without the heel. <laughs> I mean, well, okay, I did have bone spurs, but that's different. <laughs> yeah, well, he is a, he's a living argument against the First Amendment. But um, did you hear also like at that rally in Montana, the thousand that was, points of light? He made fun of a thousand, thousand points, points of light. light. Like, what, 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 what is it? What the hell is it? He's against. Well, what? it's a, a, a metaphor for 
you know, it's a picture for national service. All these people, like people event, volunteering, yeah. yeah, and and just in different things and, and just kind of, yeah, making the country better through service. Yeah. yeah. So in the same speech, what know. country better through personal service? I it just I literally don't get it. I mean, why <laughs> you pay servants? I mean, what you do? You pay the brown people, then you say you don't. That's what you do. <laughs> the fact is amazing. Last night in speech, you could insult uh, two. American war heroes in the week of July 4th. Um, yeah. By the way, I'm reading a book on a biography, a Pulitzer winning prize biography about George Washington. And um, it's probably best not to do that right now. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Constitution was written with Washington's sort of virtues in mind. I mean, they. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's a whole other discussion. I mean, we're getting off of predestination, but. Uh, like Washington, I could never tell a lie. <laughs> but the idea of. I was watching the Nixon tapes. It's not a lie if the president tells it. <laughs> yeah. The idea that a republic doesn't really survive uh, without uh, holding on to the core virtues that formed it. Uh, that's that's kind of the nature of republics. And so, anyway, that's uh, one other reason that uh, enjoy these July 4th while we're having them. <laughs> After soon, we'll have Trump Day. Yeah, or something. Yeah. But anyway, so... Um, what would, I mean, part of the, you know, I would say maybe even, I'm going to use a word I never use. Ready? Part of the missional interpretation of election is this idea that uh, if you really, I think the best chapter about predestination or election in the Bible, or most helpful one is Ephesians 1. Not I think those who base election on Romans 9 through 11, uh, if that's where you get most of your doctrine of election, you're, you're, you're misreading Romans 9 through 11. It's a much more Ephesians 1, and also in, in a different way, also Romans 8. Yes, yes. Like, because yes. Paul is dealing with a sort of his own abstract, I mean, his own concrete missional problem of where Jews and Gentiles. And so some of this is even hypothetical. I mean, he uses what if, what if, you know, like right. the, the Romans 9 through 11 is not the place to, to, to build you your know. doctrine. But the reason I'm saying that is because it, it does, it very much carries on the tradition that the idea of Israel was elected for a purpose, you know, it was elected for a mission, to be a light unto the Gentiles, and to be, you know, God's, an example of God, what it meant to be, you know, have have this kind of relationship with God, and it was to show the world that. And Paul ties, you know, the coming of Christ and being in Christ as part of that ongoing, the idea of you're elected for a purpose, you're elected for to mission, we are chosen in order to carry on that, to be a light to the world, uh, to demonstrate um, the coming triumph of God in our in our lives. So I'm going to open my reading light again. All right, very good. You agree with Edward Oates, who quotes Ephesians 1. Yes, I would. And the praise to God the Father, uh, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, choosing us for the foundation of the world. And Oakes says, predestination then is really, this is a Catholic thinker, so, is really the resulting realization that comes upon believers when they reflect how graciously they've been received and accepted by God and how the circumstances that conspired to lead them to believe were not of their own doing and were not, in Aristotle's phrase, up to them. In other words, the doctrine... Is that really Aristotle's phrase, up to them? I mean, I think... That's, <laughs> that's how he said it. Okay. But that's the input. That's okay. the intent. Right. Yeah. In other words, the doctrine first arose out of a sense of gratitude for a gift that came yeah. in the fullness of time. In that regard, it represents the convergence of several realizations in a Christian's life. That God, one, that God is eternal and his very creation is a gratuitously willed gift that did not have to be. Two, that even 
though the world is sinful to its edemic core, God can trump sin and outrun the sinner. Three, that among the mass of human beings on the globe, I, for reasons that have nothing to do with my merit, for I did not even choose to be born, let alone where or when, have been given the grace to know of of this decision of God to outbid human sin. And four, that the spontaneous response to this accumulating set of realizations can only be gratitude. This view, virtue, gratitude, is the core of Paul's doctrine, a gratitude that, at least in his case, is so powerful and overwhelming, it spills out in this extraordinary pion. And he's just, then he goes to Roman eight, what, Romans 8. What yeah. can we, yeah. we say to all this if God is for us? Who can be against us? Matter of fact, if you go through and if you look at most of Paul's great theological insights, particularly when he deals with mystery, uh, and this is in throughout a number of the letters, uh, after each time he talks about it, he ends in doxology. Yeah. And so I do think this fact is, you know, gratitude. I mean, I used to, it's funny, when I would give this lecture about predestination, and generally I was not uh, giving a lecture to those who were friendly to Calvinism, I'd always say, um, well, if you had to make a choice that your salvation was either in your hands or in the hands of God, which would you pick? Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's where Calvin got... The comfort. I mean, yeah. I, and I think that's, and actually, that's not Calvinism. That's the great tradition, right there. Yeah, it's, and it's I grace think, alone. I mean, salvation by grace alone. I think the two thinkers that in the 20th century. I mean, Leslie Newbigin, first in a book called The Open Secret, which is kind of his ecclesiology, missiology, one of his first attempts at it. But it, he made a huge part of election. And in the Bible, election is not some abstract metaphysical thing. It's it is totally about God choosing out people from right. the Adamic mess. To, for the sake of others, for the sake of the world. Yeah, yeah. And then also Karl Barth, who thinks election is more about God than about us. Like the good news of election, he thinks is, he says that election is the sum of the gospel, that God, yeah. before all things, chose to be God for us and in no way without us. So that, Borea says, Barth may be more Calvin than Calvin. At that yeah, point. right. So, yeah, so yeah. you have this, this missionary impulse of election yeah. doesn't begin with us, but within God who chooses to be God eternally in no other way than the way that includes us. Yeah, and I think this is a quote I use maybe too much, but it's still one of my favorite quotes, I think, to tie this together, that I think sometimes it's lost in extremes of, of extreme expressions of this doctrine, is uh, from um, Thomas Merton, that uh, humans have freedom and humans love. Uh, but because we're humans, our freedoms are uh, not as free as we think they yeah. are, and our loves are... Always less than. The great Augustinian Calvinistic term, yeah. concupiscence. It's yeah. our problem. We wrongly ordered love. But the good news is that human freedom, the limitations of human freedom, and the often inadequacy of human love does not pre- prevent or hinder the freedom of God or the love of God. And so I think for me, when I think God is sovereign in the sense of God's freedom and his love are not hindered by human failure or human inadequacy. No, it's a sovereignty of grace. Sovereignty of grace. That's where we're at. That's where we stand on that one. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday, everybody. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and banter. Thanks again for listening to New Persuasive Words. 